Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and after an unspeakably long hiatus, I am reunited on this podcast with Thea Lenarduzzi, commissioning editor, tick namer and pronunciation guru extraordinaire, Thea. How do you respond to that? How was last week without me? <laughs> um, Tick name is unfair, isn't you it? Would, you would have to, you'd have to ask our listeners, I think. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. I did listen question. to it. I oh, thought, did you? Yeah, I thought the opening was rather friend, too friendly. There was no... no one was too trying much enthusiasm. To, yeah, no one was trying to, to, to jibe at each other. It was just, it was lovely. It was warm. No, we all get on well when you're not here. Yeah, no, it was very good. Uh, and I said tick name because, should, should we go into that or no, not? No, I don't think we should. Okay. We'll leave it as a mystery. Coming up on the show this week, we are publishing in the TLS an exclusive piece of bibliographic sleuthing, the solution to the question of what the world's most mysterious manuscript actually means. Nicholas Gibbs has done what many scholars have failed to do, come up with a credible theory to translate the Voynich manuscript, a strange compendium of seemingly impenetrable signs surrounded by astrological symbols and pictures of nude bathing women. Intrigued? You will be. Nicholas will be in the studio. We are also delighted to be running a new poem by Paul Muldoon called Robert Lowell at Castletown House. Thea will speak to him and he will read it for us. And we shall be joined by podcast friend, fiction editor, a man both big in China and unduly fond of the prose of Ema McBride, Toby Lishtig. He will talk us through the latest fiction releases. The Voynich Manuscript is a parchment-bound volume made from calfskin and consisting of 102 leaves. It dates from the early years of the 15th century. It was probably owned by Emperor Rudolf II. It also lays claim to be one of the world's greatest bibliographical mysteries. It's covered with strange non-Roman scripts, hitherto undeciphered, some unrecognised plants, astrological symbols and plenty of naked women in baths that contain green liquid. What does all of that mean? Well, nobody's really come up with a convincing answer to that. Many renowned cryptologists have confessed themselves stumped about its apparent code. This week in the TLS, we published the theory of Nicholas Gibbs, who has cracked the code, firstly by realising it was never a code in the first place. He joins Thea and me in the studio now. 
to explain more. So, Nicholas, how do you get involved? How did you get involved with looking into a, a mystery like this? Basically, because a television company asked me to have a look and analyse the illustrations of the manuscript as I was an artist. They say, come on, you're an artist. Tell us what you think of them. Are they fake? Do they tell you anything? So I actually went in and I thought, right, let's go and have a look at all the medieval manuscripts that I think this might be uh, involved in. You thought immediately this could be based on earlier medieval... Well, I looked at, right, the date was 1403 to 1438 in that region. Yeah. It had been carbon dated to that. And so therefore, I looked at medieval manuscripts of that date with bathing because that's what it exactly portrays. And then you suddenly discover that bathing was very much in and had been in for over 1,500 years. And it was to do with your health and medical uh, um, healing. So you immediately thought this feels like a medieval, medieval well, medicine having, of having some read, Having read the medieval manuscripts and seen that bathing was very much in all the time, therefore I knew that I was in medical manuscript area. You started to discern narratives in it as well. Well, once I'd got uh, identified bathing, I then went to look at all the bathing books and all the medical books of the time. And slowly but surely, the descriptions in those books started to match each other and then started to match the illustrations in the Voynich manuscript. You felt there must be some sort of er text somewhere that, that covers these issues? Yes, to, to a point. And I, I got to know that in medieval manuscripts, they used abbreviations enormously. And so AQ equals aqua equals water. And so you knew that that might well be used in the actual script, the text of the medieval manuscript. So let's talk about the text, because that's the most, I mean, apart from the, the ladies in green liquid, which is quite a bemusing thing to see, but the text itself, and people will have to look at the paper to see it, it's non-Roman... It doesn't look like individual letters. It doesn't look like any specific... To the naked eye, it doesn't seem to me to look obviously like letters. So what, when you were confronted by that, what did you think? When you have a look at medieval manuscripts, you will find that the scribes used ligatures. Ligatures are shortcuts to words, uh, like an ampersand is a shortcut to and. Yeah. Um, so therefore, when I had a look at both medieval manuscripts and the Voynich manuscript itself... There are two particular uh, ligatures that that jumped out. One was for Eus and the other, one, the other one was for Etienne. And so therefore that convinced me that there was a whole series of ligatures, not necessarily hidden, but in the text, which because of the idiosyncrasy of the handwriting, one was unable to distinguish until you'd got your eye in. So effectively you make the leap that they used abbreviations all the time. You spotted a thing, couple of things that look like evident abbreviations, and then you have to try and work out if every other marking was an abbreviation of something else. Absolutely. So therefore, I go to the medieval manuscript uh, Bible, which uh, is by Capelli. And in that, Capelli in two centuries ago, well, the 1890s, had, in fact, written out all the ligatures that he had ever found in medieval manuscripts and put them in a, in a dictionary. And so, therefore, that was wonderful. But they were various idiosyncratic handwritings. So um, once you have 
uh, your eye in and you see the idiosyncrasies of the scribe's writing, then you start to see the little angles of the letters or angles of the shapes that then match in with the uh, Capelli's dictionary of abbreviations. So, so having spotted that, what is what's your conclusion? What is the Voynich manuscript? What is this document that has eluded other Voynich people? manuscript is basically a huge book on recipes, and each recipe uh, identifies either bathing or it identifies the types of uh, medicine you should be taking with such and such a plant. But we haven't got onto the reason why you can't find any names because there are no names in the text. Yeah. And there are no names in the text because the indexes have been taken out. And the indexes were probably never put back when the thing was rebound. And would the indexes have been written out in, in Roman script, you think? And, and the indexes very... probably would be written out longhand. But as long as you have a malady and the name of... The treatment, I suppose. It's a, it is a treat. Yeah, a treatment. Absolutely dead on. Yeah, yeah. Once, once you have that, uh, and you have a page number, then you don't need to write that in the script. It's 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 superfluous. So it could have said bronchial complaint, bad cough, and you need a certain root. See page forty-two. Well, basically, it would say uh, ginger. Yeah. Cough. Page 42. And you turn to page 42 and you'd see some strange symbols. Strange symbols, which would be the recipe with the actual measurements or quantities written out. And there you have it. No. And in terms of who this was aimed at, it was aimed specifically at women of a certain class. I think this was, uh, this was written for uh, a personal physician of a family. And this is the physician's family book. And he used it. Because if you are an aristocrat in a castle, you have a retinue of probably four or five hundred people, and probably about thirty or forty of those are women. In which case, this is the physician's handybook. And the astrological symbols are because in that time people connected health with with astrology as well. That's so that because there are astrological symbols in the text as well, aren't they? Oh, the yes, women are holding stars. Well, the stars. The star is not a um, not a symbol for for the planets. It's a symbol for water. Yeah. Uh, and they're holding these, and also right at the end of the manuscript, there are a whole series of stars, but uh, some are coloured, some are not, some are, have got little circles in them, which are all identifications of what tonics or unguents they are. And because we don't have an index, we don't know that. But that, that is what, how it has identified each recipe. And what, why is this idea of abbreviation and recipes for medicine not come sooner, do you think? Because this has been, this manuscript's been around, obviously, for a long time, but the, the mystery around it has been around for a century or so. Is that right? It's been longer, in fact, mainly because I think most of the people who looked at this were not physicians. And having been not physicians, they have no idea of how to mix a particular recipe up. When it was refound in 1912, most of the people who looked at it were supposed to be cryptographers. So they looked at it as a code. That's the, I found that really interesting. If you look at something thinking it's a code, you start analysing strokes and things like that to form a pattern. But you you came to this not thinking it was a code in the first place. I wasn't sure what it was, but I was pretty certain that it wasn't a code because the the combination of letters was too small to involve a whole series of names because if you have a combination of letters, you need to have that combination that has 
probably about a thousand titles, whether it be a malady or whether it be plant. And you simply didn't have that. So therefore, you knew that the malady or the plant was not mentioned. Yes, yeah, so the point is it's not mentioned. Therefore, you, you look at what is the purpose of each of those pages. What is the, yeah, absolutely. And you come to the, it's a recipe and therefore it must be an abbreviation. And, of. And recipes are naturally short. That's the nature of them. What do you think the reception to this theory will be? Because there's, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about this manuscript as well. I was taught once, or I was told once, by a great friend who wrote a book on Nazi gold. And he said, any conspiracy theories, if they say you were told this story by a friend or an aunt, or the gold came from a particular place, always ask why, where, who, and dates and times. And if they can't give you that, therefore it's load of old rubbish, in which case take no notice of it at all. And likewise with this, all these people who come up with conspiracy theories have got no proof where they get their stories from or who wrote it or what it's about. Yeah. Unless they start to get proof themselves, as I have done, yeah. you cannot say this is this and this is that. And in some ways, what I find so kind of enchantingly simple about this theory is I like the idea of the best way to crack a code is to realise it's not a code. Right, it's not a code. But the other thing is to look at the metadata as well, which was a system invented by Gordon Welshman in the Second World War, which is not actually looking at the code itself, but looking where the code came from and between which station, where it's going and where it's coming from. And then you could identify what the words might be in the code. So if a message was sent from one aerodrome to another, you knew pretty well that there'll be something to do with aircraft in that message. And in which case, you can then tell the code breakers that you're probably going to find this letter, that letter and that letter in. So you have to make an, this is what I find, you have to make an imaginative leap first. So in your case, your imaginative leap was saying, I looked at medieval texts, this looked like a uh, a manual for medicine and and therefore i'd expect to see maladies and and herbs but they aren't there so you can make your conclusion about the index being missing and you have you have to make that first leap though don't you you have to make that first leap but also you have to back it up so every time you make a guess then go off and find how that then fits in with your theory and with the voynet manuscript i then had to read through every single translated chapter written by Galen, Hippocrates and Pliny, the Greek physicians. And as you start to read them, they tell little stories with their recipes. And those little stories then started to appear in the Voynich manuscript, and not only in the Voynich manuscript, but it started to appear, or you could see it appearing in all the other illustrated medical books. So you knew one medical book was not necessarily copying from the other, but they were actually using the stories to illustrate the recipe. So then you find those pictures in the Voynich manuscript. So you can find those pictures in the Voynich manuscript, and then you can then match them with another book called Tubulanius uh, Putulanius, and that is purely illustrative. So once you start to get a general idea of how all illustrations of medieval medicine were, then you start to actually start to say, right, if the Voynich Manuscript is a medical book, let's see if I can find the stories in those illustrations. And slowly they start to come. And slowly, as the more narratives come in the illustrations, 
the more you know that you're on the right track. And then your eye gets into the abbreviations. And your eye gets into the abbreviations because what you then do is you go to the books and read the Latin and start to see that the abbreviations start to pop out everywhere. And you don't just read the illustrative books, you go to all the very, very boring medical books that are holed up in libraries that nobody's ever looked at for the last 200 years. And you will suddenly start to see these abbreviations. And you know why the abbreviations there, because scribes and we all, we all are naturally uh, have abbreviations keyed into us. You want to shorten everything. And how did you feel when you, when you thought, I've, I've cracked this, this and, and then presumably you kept getting reinforced the more you read. My first thoughts about this manuscript was that it was actually on perfume, and perfume's part of the medical healing uh, aromatherapy we have today. So I had gone into the looking at the history of perfume, going right back to Babylonian times, and I found that many of the recipes had been written in cuneiform tablets. And so I rang up, by chance, Irvin Finkel of the British Museum, who's the expert, and he said, come and see me. So I went and saw him with everything I've got. And he then explained about perfume and then looked at what I got. And he said, I don't know anything about this. And I've been shown it, uh, but I'm not sure about it. I'm rather sceptical. But if you want, I'll be your devil's advocate. And I said, OK, yes, please. Because you, or when you're doing research, you always need someone to bounce off need someone to throw an idea at them for them to tell you either it's rubbish or it's great. And so for two years, we did this. I went up every six or seven weeks to the British Museum and I produced what I had and we would go through it and he would say rubbish, rubbish, or yes, that's great. And that's actually how I progressed. Nick, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and, and telling the story. I, I'm totally fascinated by that. I, and, and I do hope people will, will have a look at the paper as we explain, you explain, Nicholas, what the Voynich Manuscript means. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This year is a double anniversary for Robert Lowell. It's 100 years since his birth and 40 years since his death from a heart attack in a New York City taxi. Lowell is still one of America's most well-known poets, with two Pulitzers to his name. He is also one of the few poets to have graced the cover of Time magazine, as he did in a portrait garlanded with laurels in June 1967. The magazine called him the best American poet of his generation, and many would agree his mastery of English poetic tradition is impressive, to say the least. But his legacy is also a controversial one. If people have always liked to gossip about Lowell, about his fragile mental health, his high-profile literary friendships and liaisons, and his constant marital infidelity, his characteristically confessional style, most notoriously in 1973's infamous collection The Dolphin, gave them all plenty to go on. Paul Muldoon, one of his generation's finest poets, and himself a Pulitzer Prize winner, has written a poem in this week's TLS, Robert Lowell at Castletown House, marking the double anniversary. Paul joins us on the line now from County Donegal on a US mobile. Paul, Lowell famously played a role in shaping the talents of, among others, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath and George Starbuck, whom he taught at university in Boston in the 1950s. Now, You've written a few poems inspired by Lowell. I'm wondering, when did you first come to him? What struck you about his poems? And what what did you take from him, as it were? Well, you know, I was very conscious uh, as someone who was starting to write poetry in the mid-1960s of Lowell as a major figure. I mean, he was was very, very big. And uh, one was very conscious of him, uh, you know, in the Sunday newspapers, uh, from London, for example, and uh, then of course uh, we were reading them at school. Um, I'm sure we were reading Skunkar, for example, at uh, grammar school, high school, and then when I got to university, 1969 to the 70s, certainly uh, reading them there, and indeed met him there sometime in the early 70s. He came to Queen's University, Belfast, to get a reading. Uh, you know, breezed in uh, with all the, uh, what one say, chutzpah of uh, a proper college. And uh, so, you know, he was, for anyone, I suppose, at some level, anyone writing poetry um, in the 60s, the 70s, and since, um, Lowell has had a huge impact. You know, the, 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 these poems that are now the order of the day, the poems about family and, you know, making sense of one's day-to-day life are all, actually, all informed in some profound sense by Robert Lowell. Well, and in terms of making sense of one's day-to-day life, he had quite a complicated life to try to to make sense of. So, I mean, just, just before you read the poem for us, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about it. The title and the first stanza set the scene and name some of the key players, the his third wife, uh, Caroline, and, and his second wife, Lizzie, who is, of course, Elizabeth Hardwick, a writer as well. So what, what attracted right. you to that particular moment in the life of Lowell? Well, I think it's partly, of course, the Irish connection. Um, <clears throat> Caroline Blackwood was a Guinness, and uh, uh, she had a, an apartment or flat down in Castletown House, just outside Dublin, and uh, they were living there. And uh, she left, of course, on this particular day for London, and he was going back to uh, Elizabeth Hardwick the following day, and all sorts of uh, 
accidents <laughs> befelling himself locked in the house. And, uh, you know, he, it, was, it was just a day or two before his death. I mean, it was that, on that trip back to New York. Uh, as he clutched the portrait uh, of Catherine um, by, by, by Lucien Floyd, that uh, he was found dead in the taxi, the back of the taxi, uh, on his way in from JFK. So um, it, it's partly the Irish connection that uh, prompted the poem, I suppose. And of course, it is a double. Uh, anniversary. It's the centenary of his birth in 1917, and uh, he died in 1977. So that makes it another anniversary. Thank you, and let's let's have the poem when you're ready. Robert Lowell at Castletown House. One. This afternoon, the chimney made a clean breast of the matter as Carolyn and he took turns to argue for her hightailing it to London. Tomorrow, he'll fly west to Lily, her own recalcitrance, the recalcitrance of a mare that will kick out because she's too often been confined to the stable for her own good. As it is, he's managed to at once disable the burglar alarm and lock himself in. He picks up the phone to hear his father mutter something about Lefkadi O'Hearn in a closet. The night is coming at a lick across the stubble fields, even as the downpipe from the gutter is mouthing the word rain. Two, everything that went against the grain, everything that had rattled its chain, everything that had gone down the drain, because of the lack of a little salt in the brain. Three, the spot where the Vartry River meets the sea should be a marsh, yet the going yesterday had been firm enough till he somehow crossed Carolyn, his penalty so harsh it was handed down in cuneiform by ur He hangs on the cusp between a wood nymph from the age of fable, and a self-styled gossip from Kentucky. The transatlantic telegraphic cable turns out to have been spun from straw. Even it's slightly unhinged, the shutter. When one's weighing wives, one must sometimes set a thumb on the scale. Though it had been all washed up in the estuary, leaving high and dry both cabin cruiser and cutter, the ocean was back to throwing dirt on him. Four, partly because the chances were slim, her light was ever but briefly dim, it had seemed. After vodkas and pins, the moon might still love nothing more than a midnight swim. Five, the amount of molasses one might add to a warm bran mash would generally take its stone from how a bear has handled the hundred-yard dash towards the ha-ha. What if the Palladian golden ratio might apply to gin and vermouth? 
the empty grate is a cast-off, and the card table itself a discard. Now there's a smoke stain on the gable, and it looks as if night has already fallen at the first fence. In the long gallery, a candle sputters like yet another sylph. That glass chandelier, meanwhile, was shipped from Venice in a cask of butter so as to save it from itself. Well, Paul Muldoon, thank you. Thank you very much. That was lovely. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Summer is over, the days are drawing in, the future is looking somewhat uncertain, it's like the end of Dirty Dancing, and that is the perfect time for big new novels to be released. We've marked the occasion with a fiction special with the following highlights. The TLS's own Toby Lishtig on two debut novels, Elmet by Fiona Mosley and My Absolute Darling by Gabriel Talent, who appeared on this very podcast a couple of weeks ago. The TLS's own Claire Saxby on J. Robert Lennon's Broken River. The TLS's own Robert Potts on the new Le Carrier, Legacy of Spies. And Claire Loudon on some responses to Trump's America, including the gold Golden House by Salman Rushdie. So, plenty for us to consider. Not least the question, can't Toby find many reviewers who don't sit within 12 feet of his desk? <laughs> he can tell us now as he joins Thea and me in the studio. Hello. Toby, hello. Hello. I think in answer to that question, Go on. It, just, it just shows what a glittering array of literary talents you have oh. working for you at the paper. <laughs> to be honest, they all are really well-written yeah. pieces. Yeah, they are genuinely well-written. I can't really include myself yeah, in that. Yours, so yours is really good. There's lots of big books here, actually, but why don't we talk about the ones that you reviewed, um, they're quite significant books. We think they're going to they're gonna linger, these these two books. I think they are significant books. So there's been a huge weight of publicity behind the Talent book. They're both debut novels, I should say. Um, and Gabriel Talent's book sort of came with this huge wave of pre-publicity, quotes by Stephen King saying it was a, you know, the best thing ever, it's a masterpiece. There have been posters on the tube, which is, you know, fairly rare for, for novels, you know, sort of literary novels, even even thrillerish style ones. Um, the disappointment is it's actually really, really good. All the hype's <laughs> justified, I'm afraid. Uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. How do these hypes begin? Because there's an auction as well, isn't there? Yeah, there was there was a usual Tenway auction. I, I, I guess there, at that sort of agency auction stage, when, when things go for a lot of money, that's when the kind of pre-publicity really, really starts. And I guess publishers just pick their battles and if there's something they really want to get behind because they think it'll do well that they will and, I and that think must be a right kind of merit- meritocracy because there's no yes. reason because it's a debut novel there's no, no big names it's not Tom Hanks no 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 absolutely, absolutely I think this is I mean no one had heard of Gabriel Talent before this book came out there's no reason to get behind it unless the publishers wanted to get behind it and I think it's sort of it, it, it's both the fact that it's very very good and I can imagine it being commercially successful that rare thing um, you know, it's, it's totally worthy of a, of a glowing review in the TLS, I believe, and it will also sell quite well. And, and it I, will be turned into a film. And it, I would be incredibly surprised if we haven't all heard of, about it as a film in and about ten years' time. And what's good about it? What, what's the, what's well, the... bar some little bits of Baroque overwriting, it's very, very well written. Which is very Cormac McCarthy. Which mentioned... is very, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me, not, not so much in theme, but in style, it does remind me to a certain extent of Cormac McCarthy. I mean, not the Cormac, sort of the pair back Cormac McCarthy, The Road, but Blood Meridian, which I 
I actually read straight afterwards. I hadn't read Blood Meridian and I and I'd vowed to read it on this podcast a while ago and I did read it straight after Mount Sleep Darling and I could see some sort of similarity. It's just the maximalist inventory approach. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And that kind of sort of that, that approach to America's vastness, both in terms of space and also in terms of sort of human ingenuity and tools and guns and that sort of yes, sort of pe- pe- people interacting with nature and And there are kind of countless similarities between the two novels. So the two the two novels yeah, the other one, yeah. well, so the other one's uh, it's called Elmet it's by Fiona Mosley um or Mosley I'm not sure again no one's heard of her because it's a debut novel I only heard about this when it got onto the Booker long list which it currently is on um the short list is announced next week so we'll see if it will get on that and I'd already read the talent novel and thought I'd, I'd review it and then I just picked up the Mosley because it was on the long list and I, and it just seemed incredibly similar basically because both are very gothic they they play on these yeah. gothic themes dynasty hermet, you know small hermetic communities um uh sort of how to deal with power even even the smaller gothic tropes like burning houses towards the end of the novel and that sort of thing um and they are both in different sorts of gothic tradition as i argue in the piece so fiona mosley's much more english it's much more pared down um you know and the countryside it talks about is is very english as well it's set in in west yorkshire whereas the the talent novel it's much more in debt as you know the sort of southern gothic tradition uh, and again that sort of maximalist approach are we living in in a in a, in a time particularly fertile for gothic imagination because it's very doom laden at the moment um do you think that, that there's a sort of this is a sort of literary response to, to the spirit of the yeah, age I was, I was sort of thinking of that and i think I, I i wonder if it's slightly too soon to tell them i'd be, I'd be interested in if in 20 years time we we, we look back and realize that yeah. there's been a, a particular slew of gothic novels i mean people always have, have written gothic novels and you know the, the, the modern gothic um is has been a very popular trope and it's you know it's, it's it's quite an easy one to to draw on and to mimic and to do badly as well as to do well with it'll be interesting to see whether yes it's the gothic that comes to the fore when we look back or the sat- like satirical novels exactly and i mean you know i should say although although these are very sort of doom laden in their different ways and i and i sort of made some comment in the piece about whether there are these two father figures in both of the novels these powerful father figures who are, who are ultimately the cause of doom and whether you know this says something about the new era of the strong man but actually neither of these novels are overtly political you know they, they're not trying to deliberately comment on the current political climate they're they're more of a sort of a, a mood bellwether shall we say i'm wondering if there is a a new stock character being born as well of the homeschooled child. Yes, that yeah, to... yeah, yeah, possibly. So yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, and, and another similarity. But in fact, there are two pivotal opening scenes in both of these books where uh, this 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 sort of young child has has gone to school, has had a kind of fracas with a teacher, and the father's come to kind of sort it out, and basically it results in the child being taken away from the almost the kind of the open setup of the school which is part of society and taken back to the closed society of the house and this hermetic community and they both use those scenes very effectively uh, we'll get on to the question of satire and talk about Salman Rushdie but before we do why don't we talk about John Le Carre um, he's an example of a very good writer who should know when to stop discuss <laughs> I made the terrible mistake many years ago of uh, I was at a country house once and I picked up Smiley's People and started reading it and, and did struggle to the end and only then at the end did I realise it was a third, third in his, his famous trilogy that's very a very pertinent point because not only does this piece win the best headline prize <laughs> um, the spies who came back rather old very good. but because that is itself very pertinent because this is a kind of a uh, it picks up the early book exactly picks up the spy it, it, the cold. it does it, it picks that up and it and it reintroduces lots of lots of characters who were there in the sixties and seventies and Robert Potts the reviewer makes the point that um, there are some oddities here I mean Smiley 
Le Carre's famous character, um, who who makes a sort of a small appearance, is at the very least a hundred, which is you know which is fine. It's possible for him to be a hundred, but yeah. but Le Carre seems to have taken various um, other liberties. I mean, Robert says this is a this is a book for loyal readers. It's not a brilliant example of Le Carre, um, and he says which raises the question why are there so many discrepancies between the earlier books and this one? And he goes in forensic detail um, to to um, illuminate these characters who are suddenly twenty years too old or thirty years too young. It seems very very to me. I don't understand why his editor didn't, didn't pick it's, this up. I mean, it's also the kind of reading that I imagine if you're an author, in a sense, you would be immensely grateful for to know that someone is reading your, your work so closely. Well, you'll also have, your he'll also have fans. So There's well. such a risk, though, because yeah. exactly. these books, I mean, I grew up in a house that had lots of trashy spy novels like Len Dayton, but also had John le Carre. And John le Carre was kind of an elevated literary figure Absolutely. among genre writers. Yes, and, and, and he very much draws on the politics of the time. I mean, uh, Robert Potts makes, he, he makes a very good case for the Le Carre having been good for a long time, and he, he basically says he's struggled a little since the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah, well, and it made me think, uh, who are the writers who go on too long and tarnish their legacy? And I often say this, but I feel it really keenly. John Updike is the one that occurs to me. Maybe you've got any... It's just, well, and again, and it, think about Updike, he did pointless sequels. There's The Widows of Eastwick, yes. which is a classic one. Witches of Eastwick is not a great book to begin with. It was all, it was good. It was Updikean and it was in his sort of middle period, so it had lots of And then a very passages, fun film. And a very fun film. But there was no reason to do the sequel, except it's the end of his career and he's got a publishing contract and fans will want it. It will probably sell quite well. There is a risk, isn't there, Toby, that these people go on too long and they start damaging their reputation. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Literary Mick Jaggers. And I I was, yeah, I was thinking about this as well and and I sort of feel that 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 80s generation, that male 80s generation, Amos, Swift, Rushdie, and to a slightly lesser extent, McEwen, um, Ishiguro, even Jonathan Barnes, perhaps. I'm not saying they should have stopped writing when they hit the age of 45. Um, You know, of course, they're they're going to go on writing. But I think none of them really, with, with one or two occasional exceptions, have done very much very good for a very long time. And actually, and, the, and there's the, the great American one, I think Roth by the end was, was well, virtually unreadable. And, and he, he took the brave decision of retiring. Yeah. So his last two or three novels, I mean, he had this wonderful late period, in his or late-ish period in his late 60s and early 70s, where he wrote some fantastic novels, you know, the kind of late 1990s. Yeah. And then he wrote a few duff ones. Those very short ones ago. about uh, indignation and stuff like that. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, indignation was one of them. The humbling, I think yeah. his last one was Nemesis. Yeah. Um, and then one, just, one of them was about, about a man who uh, ends up with a threesome with, with lesbians. Yeah. And think, oh, oh, dude. Calm o- down. Old men writing yeah. about sex. Old men a, writing about sex. A, we should do a whole podcast yeah, on that. It's a, it's a dang, yes, dangerous talk, Yes, I am talking about you, Hanif Qureshi. <laughs> I do not want to read a book written by an old man in which an old man has sex with a young woman. Yeah. I just don't want to read it ever. Yeah. And actually, another great example of that is um, Salmon Rushdie's novel *Fury*, which is which is a appalling novel about an old man. Uh, well, let's talk about Salmon Rushdie. Woman brilliant, brilliant segue. There you go. He is written. Is it a Trump satire? Do we think it's it's a satire of Trump era America? So it actually it starts with the uh, inauguration of Barack Obama, his new novel, *The Golden House*. I think it's, it starts with the election of, of Obama and it ends with the inauguration of Trump. It's not directly about Trump, although Trump comes into it. And he's not it's, called Trump, is he? He's called he's, some f- preposterous he's, name. Uh, he's called, in fact, I've, I've isolated a quote for you because I thought you might ask. Here we go. He is a certain Gary Green Gwynplaine, a Bulgarian <laughs> whose name Nero, Nero's the hero of this book, could not bring himself to speak and who liked to call himself the Joker on account of having been born with inexplicably lime green hair. So Rushdie there has, has changed Clever. the hair very cleverly from a sort 
sort of a, a strange orange to a lime green, which I think is brave. Well, uh, it's opposite on the colour wheel, I think. Absolutely. Oh, well done. He's taken a risk. Well, and it reminded me of um, a, similar, a similar sounding novel by Howard Jacobson. Oh. Earlier this year, um, I can barely pronounce the name, it's called Pussy, yeah. uh, written in, in a fury of disbelief as that, the cover um, That made me so stated. angry when I read that. Written in a fury of disbelief over, th- over, three, we, over three weeks. And, his, and, and actually Jacobson's another, another author you, you know, who oh. could have profitably retired ten years and ago. And indeed writes too much about sex. And writes too much about sex. He had exactly. a whole and, book about um, polyamory. He did. He oh, did. God, I hated it. But his, his trump is not a, not Gary Gwynplaine, but Prince Fracassus, <laughs> who's born in the Palace of the Golden Gates, and etc., etc., etc. And I sort of, I don't really understand why these authors are going for Trump in this way, because he's such an easy target, and he's it's so easy to, you know, it's a banality to say that the satirists are having to work overtime, isn't it? Yeah. So you've got to try a bit harder. Well, it's interesting, Claire Loudon says that the that these novels test the pH of their times, the various novels that she reviews. And I wonder, is that really, should that be a prime function of a novel, testing the pH of their times? No, I think within their times, absolutely not. When we look back on novels, it's fantastic that, that you know, that they can they can give an example, of, you know, they test the pH of their times. But in terms of sort of reacting to, yeah. to currents around them, I mean, of course, we all do. We all, we, all, we all write in our times, but actually writing directly about them, particularly Trump, because he's such a fast moving story. I mean, you know, he, 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 he becomes a different news story within every... 15 minutes, you know, every 15 every minutes or every tweet, exactly. Yeah. So the idea of trying to respond to him directly um, and that in itself being enough is, uh, I think, misguided. Well, you're setting yourself up to have a very short shelf life. Yeah. Unavoidably, there's got to be a certain amount of kind of hot topic box ticking that goes on. Exactly. So, you know, gender and sexuality or... Exactly. Whatever. And actually, Claire Loudon makes the point that, you know, it's not necessarily a disaster if a novel doesn't have a long shelf life. That's not necessarily what everyone wants out of a novel but it's just you, you've got to be a bit cleverer with the satire because mm. what, what are you doing that political commentators aren't doing if you're just saying oh look he's a bit of a, a vulgar and he's got yeah. odd hair well we were we were talking david horsepool and i were talking about a play we'd both seen called against and it made me realize the thing i don't like about a lot of modern theater is and this is true i think of these novel writings as well is that they 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 focus on ideas and issues and they think, I'm going to write about Trump or I'm going to write about the dangers of modern technology. And then they backfill the book with characters and stories to, to advance that particular theme. And I just can't help but thinking, in the great works of literature, either in the theatre or in fiction, that's not how it works. People write stories, which, because they're brilliant and beautifully written with believable characters, they tell us things about broader issues. We can infer stuff from them, but they're not written to tell us that. Exactly. exactly. So, so for going back to our earlier conversation, Fiona Mosley's novel, Elmet, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's set in this contemporary Yorkshire, which is also otherworldly and slightly feudal in feel, and the landlord's... Are, you know, are, are in power essentially, and the and the, the tenants are the ones who are you know kind of uh, under the cosh, and there are these sort of strange um, uh, arguments, sort of, and sort of elements of unionising or whatever, and it's it, it says much more about power that novel than than I think Rushdie's one does, because it's you know it's oblique, it's coming coming to it from a slightly different angle. There's something in when you're writing about the Mosley book where you describe it as less ambitious and less flawed, and I suppose I find that quite an interesting hmm. trade-off because it comes it comes in again when Claire Loudon's writing about some of the books in her review where it's ambitiousness is what it falls down on. So I suppose you're kind of torn between wanting to reward the ambition at the same time as knowing that they're they're sort of making a noose to hang themselves with. There's a great Homer Simpson quote to Bart where he said, you've tried and you've failed, 
the lesson is never try. <laughs> so we have to, I mean, you can't blame someone for ambition, but if you can't just be left with that, I mean, Norman yeah. Mailer was the great novelist of just ambition, mm. which is really, mm. you know, it's really ambitious, but it's not very good. Mm. Actually, he's another one you could argue hasn't, you know, sort of didn't have a great late oh. period. I mean, and his late period started very, very early. He had an early late <laughs> an period. An early late period. No, it was, I remember reading one about Hitler's youth. Oh, yes, cool. Yeah, yes. uh, a book. It was about a translation of Book and World, which is something in the forest. And it, was, it was about a house in the forest, something like that. It just, it was just yes, that it, was one of his last ones. It was it? His, yes, his last was, one. I yeah. think it yeah. was his last one. Yeah. It was yeah, another one who tarn- again tarnishing the reputation. Yeah. Well, let's leave it there. We've we've rubbished everyone, but we're not going to rubbish people. <laughs> Actually, let's not. You feel Mosley and. Talent, they are worth. I'm, they're worth reading. They're worthy. Mosley should be on the book of book list. I, I, I'm delighted it's on the long list. I, I'd actually rather like to see it on the short list. I think it'd be great to see it on the short list, particularly because she's a debut novelist, but also in its own right. Talent kind of didn't. I, I felt like he didn't need that book of commendation. He's got so much publicity behind him that you know he sort of <laughs> he doesn't need the extra nod from the book of crew. So I, I, I'd actually I, I was quite happy with with the way those two panned out, and I I, I can see both of them being turned into films. Actually, Toby Lucy, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Nicholas Gibbs. Paul Muldoon and Toby Lishtig do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS which also contains a great piece on the selfie generation god damn them and a guide to children's fiction please tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts please do review us on iTunes too next week we have a poetry special in the paper on Dante, David Jones, Weldon Keys, Marianne Moore, and more. Do you see what I did there? So we shall certainly be waxing poetical for you then. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.